Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Grammy-winning producer, composer, and arranger, the great Brent Fisher. He talked at length about his grand road in music and his latest project. It's a vision called Pictures at an Exhibition. It's another wonderful project of his. These days, he continues to carry on the legacy of his legendary father, Dr. Claire Fisher, and has continued to move seamlessly between the genres of jazz, pop, and symphonic. His arranging credits appear on more than 30 million albums from the likes of Usher, Michael Jackson, Elvis Costello and the Roots, D'Angelo, and more. He has a very fascinating story. Enjoy. Hey, I'm a big fan of your work. It's a great pleasure to talk to you here at Neon Jazz. I really thank you for being interested in it. That's, uh, you know, a man of your uh, learning and the, the experience that you have that, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm honored and humbled. Thank you. Well, you all are putting it out there, man. I'm just standing on the shoulders of giants. So um, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. And with your latest work, pictures and an exhibition, you know, it's just another continuation of quality work that you put out. And it happens to come out during a time on the planet that's been very strange for a year and a half now. Does this feel like cathartic or comforting to have music out for people to listen to right now? Well, I think that uh, every, everybody is going to react in, in their own way. I, I know people who uh, had a really bad year last year. I know people who had great a great year last year. Um, I know some guys that work at Zoom. You know, they, they had yeah. a fantastic year. <laughs> yes, uh, they did. Yeah, I, w- I, was, uh, I was somewhere, you know, I was somewhere in the middle. I, I had uh, some time to uh, reflect on things and uh, maybe practice a little bit more. And so that was uh, that was nice in a way, but this album also was put together with a lot of, uh, let's say, pandemic-influenced Murphy's Law-type situations <laughs> where you know, we had to, uh, oh, I don't know, change recording studios because uh, it wasn't uh, large enough, and I wanted to seat the players so that I sat the horn players in a U setup, so nobody was actually blowing air right next to, you know, right, right, right in, in the back of somebody's head or something like you usually have in a big band setup. And, uh, and we did the same thing when we rehearsed. We, we did almost all of our rehearsals. Were, well, no, I guess every rehearsal for this album was outdoors. And that was fun. You know, I did a couple of uh, pandemic-friendly concerts last year that were outdoors. And uh, we took great precautions to, uh, you know, observe all the guidelines. And the great thing is, you know, after every rehearsal and uh, every show and, and then finally after the recording sessions, uh, two or three weeks pass it, and I'm finding out that uh, nobody caught anything. And so then I feel, okay, great. That's a sense of relief. I wasn't a, uh, I wasn't a contributing factor to somebody mm. getting sick, mm-hmm. you know, so... Uh, so that was that was amazing, but uh, but yeah, the whole process of putting it together was changed a little bit. Even in the uh, you know we we've got a a making of video on YouTube, actually quite a few of them now that uh, show different you know snippets of how we put this whole project together, and that's the one thing you can see quite often is uh, a lot of the shot outdoors. <laughs> yeah, well, and one thing too about this album is that. Now things are starting to reemerge and opening up live shows. So, you know, you, you said last year was kind of half and half. When you really dig into the reflection that you went through last year, 
What did you learn about yourself that maybe you didn't realize before that's going to make you stronger now as the live world kind of opens up a little bit more? And hopefully we're on the other side of this pandemic. Yeah, that's a great question. I hadn't thought about that too much. I, I would say, you know, I I stopped doing a lot of touring and live performing uh, about 10 years ago when I, you know, I made a conscious decision that I'm going to spend more time working as a, a writer, composer, arranger, producer, uh, so which means I would be in studio sometimes, but but actually spending a lot of time at home. And so because that has kind of been my lifestyle for a good 10 years now, I um, I don't know that it changed that much for me. You know that it's yeah all the all the live stuff was was canceled and uh, we figured out ways to do like I said we did we did uh, outdoor a few outdoor performances here and there. Uh, you know I helped set up some Zoom performances for individuals. Uh, you know kind of curate some per- performances so that we could. Um, have some work for people that weren't in my same situation that were, you know, gigging musicians. That was pretty much their only source of income. Um, and, and I had a chance to teach more people remotely. So, um, you know, I did a lot of Zoom lessons for people, including on, uh, you know, on the other side of the world. And, and for me, that was a, a great experience, you know, sort of being able to share the music, analyze it, and then help these other composer arrangers or, you know, improvisers. At, all the all the people that I that I uh, spoke with during this time, that was just a phenomenal experience. However, I just recently did a uh, a seminar at my alma mater, Cal State Northridge, uh, here in Los Angeles. That was nice to be back in front of people again. And I also just did my first uh, indoor. You know, we did our our album release concert at an indoor venue here in L.A. And that was nice. It was good to be back indoors. It's so wonderful on this end of things to hear that this is happening. There was such a long chasm of, of nothing and, you know, musicians just really wanting to get back out there. So it's really great to hear all this. You know, when we go back in your lineage, obviously we know who your famous father was. And talking about standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, millions of people in the world have been inspired by his work. But growing up in that house, was it always a foregone conclusion that you were going to be a jazz musician? Was this just a part of your world all the time? Let me, uh, I mean, that's a great question. Let me shift it around to you. What was, what was your, to get me started, what was your first memory of being touched by music? Your earliest, you know, when you were a small child. Can, do you remember what that was? Or was it just sort of something that grew on you? How did you find out? You know, what was your, was it on TV, listening to the radio? heard a live stand you know i was born in 72 so for some reason i remember mellow yellow and okay. <laughs> i don't know if my mom sang it to me i don't know what the circumstances were right. they call me mellow yellow i mean i just remember that reverberating like an echo <laughs> through my sound chambers so yeah that's, that's it. right <laughs> yeah so so i mean uh, that you know i i i have uh, sort of you know, something similar, but, but what it was for me, my earliest memories are of lying underneath my dad's grand piano with our family dog and just listening to him as a small child, just listening to him. He, would, he was practicing or writing, doing exercises, you know, preparing for a session, whatever that was, um, that was, you know, so I, 
in a sense, I was, was doing that. I was listening to Claire Fisher play the piano, uh, and, and, you know, and understanding, starting to pick up on what was going on there before I had even learned to speak. So I would say, in a sense, it's, it's like music is like my first language. Now, because of that environment that I grew up in, uh, he, didn't, he, did, he never forced me to play anything, but he saw that I was interested. He saw that I liked watching him play the piano and listen to it. And, and as soon as he knew that I understood that when you're in a recording studio and the red light goes on, that means don't make a sound, he started bringing me to sessions with him. So I was about five or six years old at that point. And uh, I had already, you know, sort of lined up my tinker toy boxes at home and taken the tinker toys and beat on them. But then, you know, he, he saw when, when he took me into the recording studios that I would always sort of gravitate towards sitting near the drummer and watching the drummer play. And I had some great drummers to watch. I remember specifically um, John Guerin, Larry Bunker, and uh, Harvey Mason Sr., those were the guys that uh, I remember watching a lot of when uh, when we'd go and, you know, doing uh, whatever, albums, TV commercials, TV shows, uh, movie dates, all, all that stuff. And uh, and then as I grew up, so, so he got me a drum set when I was five or six, and I fooled around on that for a little while, and I became a good drummer. Uh, at 14, I was missing having um, pitch and harmony. <laughs> so then I, uh, I took up electric bass and uh, also was, you know, fooling around on the keyboards, but uh, electric bass became something really fascinating for me. And, and then I still went to uh, California State University at Northridge as a percussion major. I got a percussion degree, that's symphony percussion, so I learned how to play timpani and uh, vibraphone, marimba, and, uh, you know, the vibraphone and marimba work carried over into all the jazz stuff that I was doing. And, you know, so I started uh, playing vibes and marimba on my dad's albums in the early 80s. And, and then he put me to work. He saw my bass skills just sort of mushroom out at the same time as his bass player in his, uh, you know, well-known group, Claire Fisher and Salsa Picante, later became Claire Fisher Latin Jazz Group. He saw my abilities expanding at the same time as his bass player was leaving. And so it was a good fit that he would put me in the band, not just because I had the skill level to deal with it, but because I was his son and I was probably about 115 pounds and he was, you know, 220 pounds of solid muscle. He could tell me exactly what he wanted me to do, and I would play it without question, you know. So, <laughs> and he was uh, he was very tough on me, you know, because I was here. Here I was in the band, the percussionist, you know, the conga player is Pancho Sanchez, the drummer is either Alex Acuna, Pete Riso, or Walfredo Reyes, uh, you know. And there there were lots of other guys too, but those were the big ones. And then, uh, the, the, you know, the timbalero was uh, Luis Conte. You know, we had either Rick Zuniger or Danny Embry on guitar, either Gary Foster or Dick Mitchell on woodwinds. And so, you know, all of these guys were at least twice my age when I started out. And, uh, but, you know, they, they helped me a lot because they saw that I was able to handle it. So they were constantly giving me pointers and stuff like that. Uh, and, and then, again, my dad was very tough on me. He did not let me 
make uh, any mistakes or slack off with anything or not, you know, not be prepared. You know, some of the guys thought he should have probably taken a little more easy on me, but I think I'm a better musician for having gone through that. You know, it's just like the, the, the regular tough band leader type of situation where you got to really bring your A game each time. And, and so that was, that was a great experience. And then we, uh, you know, all, all of a sudden I realized, well, hey, I'm, I'm in high school and I'm playing with these great bands. We're starting to make, um, or, you know, he's starting to use me on albums. I, I didn't even go to career fair, you know. Um, I, I mean, all of my dad's friends were musicians. That was my whole environment growing up. So by the time that I found out that there were actually careers besides just growing up and becoming a musician, well, it was too late. I was already in the industry and I was already working and the the rest is history. We went on to work together for 32 years. And even though we always had, you know, our separate things that we were doing, we did a lot of projects together and I ended up being his assistant for um, a lot of the string arrangements that he did for pop and jazz artists from you know, uh, uh, Prince to Diane Shore to, you know, whatever, all the Robert Palmer, all these different artists that we were working with over the years. Uh, then I, then I became his co-writer. And, uh, as, as I, as he saw my abilities as a writer expanding, then, uh, eventually I've I become his ghostwriter when he became too busy, uh, sometimes, or there was a quick turnaround on projects. Uh, but we did it a little differently than, you know, the usual ghostwriter thing. We actually told the record companies or whoever the client was, um, you know, that, that I had done it. And, uh, and, and so that's how I kind of worked my way into not only continuing with this type of a career, writing music and ranging for various artists um, in, in multiple genres, but also this, this whole idea that, um, you know, to, to carry on the legacy. I like what my father did so much. I agreed with so much of his music philosophy. It wasn't like um, I, I decided, well, I'm just going to do the exact same thing. I mean, I, I know people that listen to what I write can hear that there is a difference, but at the same time, you can totally tell where the inspiration comes from. And I've said at his memorial service and, and many times since then that uh, his greatest gift to me was the 4,000-some pages of score, you know, the score pages that I have here, all the different arrangements. Uh, some were unfortunately lost, you know, in the shuffle of just being very busy during the 60s and 70s. By the 90s, I started realizing as I was, you know, becoming a young adult that I, I, need, to, I need to make sure we preserve everything. Um, but, 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 you know, those, those scores, I, I can look at them for inspiration and it doesn't matter if I'm writing a, a string arrangement for an R&B artist and I look at, uh, you know, a, a piece that he wrote for his Latin jazz group just because there's something in there that, that reminds me when, I, when I'm thinking of ideas for this string arrangement, there's something that reminds me of that old tune that we played together years ago and I'll go and study it and, and gain inspiration from it. So this was yeah, this was an amazing experience that I was just sort of thrust into, and um, and and it all you know it all worked out well for 32 years us working together, and now uh, he handed over directorship of the Claire Fisher Ensembles to me uh, gradually starting around 2003 2004, and since then I've kept them all going. The you know the the big band, the, the Claire Fisher Clarinet Choir, the 
jazz core group, the uh, Latin jazz group with all the, the vocalists. Uh, we still have some of the original vocalists in the group. And then I, you know, I find new players and I make sure we keep up the, uh, the Fisher sound, let's say. There's, there's a certain way of working with the band. And, and, you know, I'm sure you can see by the, by the people that I use. I mean, these are, these are guys that, are the cream of the crop that have been on a lot of people albums, you know, a lot of uh, people's albums. Mm -hmm. But every artist has their own way that they like to work with musicians, and and so the way that I have done it, which is based on the way my father did it, um, is uh, you know I like to think of it as a, a a type of a Fisher sound that I am carrying on in a second generation way. That's beautiful. You mentioned one person during that time that really stood out to me. He's a veteran. I've heard about for years and years, and I actually am fortunate enough to see him on a regular basis, and that's the great Danny Embry here in Kansas City. Mm. Okay. Yeah, Does he live there now? Yeah, he's here, and everybody talks about this history and lore, and I'm like, I'd love to hear somebody name it, mention something, and when you said that, I was like, there it is, and... He, yeah, he's wonderful. He's in a group called Guitar Elation, and he's in a couple other incarnations, but he's just wonderful. I mean, he's just, I mean, he's a beast on the, on the guitar. Yeah, and I, I'm pleased, well, please send him my best. We enjoyed working with him so much. He was the one uh, guitarist, I would say, that my dad worked with that could actually, um, he, he he would uh, accept the way my father wanted to write with for guitar, which was to to conceive of it as an ensemble instrument rather than a rhythm instrument. So in other words, when my dad wrote for guitar, it was like he was writing for another horn or um, you know a, a violin player or something like that. So the guitarist had parts, even if the parts had uh, chords in them and stuff like that. Uh, there were very few of my dad's guitar charts that actually had chord symbols where he expected the guitar player to be comping chords at the same time as he was because, you know, my dad's um, sense of harmony and all the, the shifting chromaticism that was going on there, but while it's still a very, very tonal music, you can't have two guys that are that complex happening at the same time. And so when we'd play live, uh, there would be times that actually Danny would, you know, just lay out while my dad would comp and then maybe my dad would rest for a couple of choruses while uh you know rhythm player was soloing or or a woodwind player and, and then let danny take take over the comping and 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 he was the one guy that was uh let's say you know humble enough that would accept this arrangement and didn't want to be one of those guys that you know wanted to be playing all the time they had to you know they had to be playing every bar and that was uh that was you know a perfect pairing for my dad with Danny Ambry. Yeah, so that That's was wonderful. Great. That's cool. So before we depart your younger years, childhood, so to speak, you know, you were around musicians all the time, and I'm sure there was a long period where you just weren't even cognizant of star power. What, what was the first musician that you got around that you really saw, you know, you got bespeckled by their famousness, or you, you were just like, wow, this is so-and-so? Well, for me, it was more about the... Um, you know, I would say to me, somebody was famous in my mind as a child if they were a really phenomenal musician. So, uh, for instance, um, you know, my dad and I started listening to Return to Forever, 
at the same time. And uh, to me, that was, you know, just listening to what each of the players were doing. And, and then uh, I, I, was, I was interested enough in all the different, you know, genres that I was listening to. I grew up with a lot of rock music, too. And occasionally I would find, you know, a rock band that I liked uh, that my dad would also enjoy listening to. Maybe, you know, not his first choice for, for listening to. But there, there were, you know, progressive rock groups like uh, Gentle Giant or... Um, the stuff, the work that uh, Bill Bruford did with uh, either Alan Holdsworth and Jeff Berlin or Alan Holdsworth and John Wetton. And so to me, those guys were famous. And when I went to see their concerts as a teenager, you know, I wasn't thinking about the fact that, oh, we're in a, you know, we're in a 800 seat venue as opposed to a 20,000 seat venue. That's, that was how I was thinking about it. Oh, those are famous people. Um, and, and I think because I was around celebrities, I wasn't as, um, let's say, starstruck by that, you know, because uh, my cousin, Andre Fisher, he was uh, one of the founders of Rufus. Uh, and, and so we, we went to go see uh, Rufus and Shaka Khan open for uh, Stevie Wonder one time. At, I think it was either at the Forum or the Sports Arena here in L.A. So that was, you know, that was a huge event we were I think we were first or second row here I am this you know 10 or 11 year old kid and then I got to go backstage and and so for me that was just part of a you know a normal part of life you know for for me hanging out with somebody like Cal Jader or Pancho Sanchez was um, these are friends of my dad you know I, I didn't think of them as the uh, let's say the way the, the way that other people did, and I, I think that worked to my advantage later on because when you know I started being in the studio, where there would be a lot of celebrities around, um, I, I wasn't one of those guys that was you know nervous and kind of shaking, and I, you know I had a job to do in there. Either I was assisting my dad, I was maybe I was contracting the orchestra, so I was managing the session. Maybe I maybe I was a session coordinator, you know. And sometimes uh, later on, he he asked me to conduct, so he could go in the control room and listen. So I was you know assistant conductor, and I had lots of stuff to do, and and it just wasn't a it wasn't an issue to me. And I think celebrities like that. Uh, of people that they're working with, they don't want they don't want the guys that they're you know paying money to to do something for them to start geeking out. Let's say, <laughs> um, yeah. so yeah, so I don't I don't have a a big memory like that um, of of being you know I, I I remember being interested in the energy that's sort of created when you see a really good group playing in a large arena like that. So I think you know that's Stevie Wonder probably is. Uh, one of my, you know, earliest memories of just being sort of uh, very interested in how the whole thing works when you put on a show like that for that many people all at once. And um, I guess, you know, yes, these are these are acts that might be considered in some circles to actually be jazz related, you know, by, by today's standard, you know, not everything that Stevie Wonder did, but but certainly a much of it, and I think that's because there's there's just this relationship between uh, jazz, R&B, and gospel music, um, sharing these rich harmonies that sort of grew out of the uh, Romantic era. Uh, it, it's so interesting that because of the jazz connection, my dad and I have ended up doing more orchestral arrangements 
for R&B artists, I mean, outside of jazz. The, the, the other big genre is R&B, a little bit of work for gospel artists, and then not as much for just like, let's say, straight-ahead pop artists. And I guess it's, it's probably because of the, the willingness of uh, people in R&B and, and gospel to accept um, these thicker jazz harmonies and this whole idea of, you know, contrapuntal writing that is, well, it's, it's kind of becoming a lost art. I would say that's one thing that I'm still waiting for people to pick up on is, is the idea of using counterpoints, you know, going, going back to the original improviser, J.S. Bach. Uh, what was that, you know, 400 years ago or something? Yeah. Um, you know, imagine being there and watching him take a single melody and improvise a four-part fugue out of it, you know, like a canonic fugue or something like that. And all of that was improvised, and it was only later on after he'd improvised something that he would write it all down. And, and he could write it as fast as he could play it because it was all just being put together spontaneously in his head. And and that's uh, that's, that's an amazing thing. But, yeah, so this is, to make a, a short story long, um, that's, I think, how I have viewed my you know sort of my relationship with celebrities as a as a, let's say a behind the scenes guy but somebody who occasionally comes up and you know I have no I have no fear of of state you know like stage fright feeling or anything like that so to go up and and be the MC for a show is is fine with me and that's you know it's just never anything that I have worried about to you know sort of psych myself into going on stage and doing a good job that was just sort of always there because I, I just watched everybody else always do it. You know, it's time to play. Okay, well let's time let's go play. It's interesting about you're talking about the cross pollinating of genres. I went down here in Kansas City to the American Jazz Museum and they have a new exhibit based on the Disney movie called The Soul of Jazz and they kind of go through each city, like what the influence LA and New York and New Orleans and Kansas City and all these cradles of jazz and how they influence what was going on. And I remember them saying how L.A. was instrumental because of the movie and TV industry and how all of these pieces, elements of jazz that people aren't, you know, thinking definitively about, but are really kind of the backbone of a lot of things that were going on. And it was cool because at the same time, they have a jazz academy here in town and the students were out there playing. So it's like there was all of these things happening all at once while I was thinking about how all of these things kind of work together in one big machine. So it's interesting how you verbally orchestrated that and I was thinking how those things played in and you know you have a lot of arranging credits that go on to a lot of albums from Elvis Costello and and Michael Jackson and all these other artists what album that you were a part of surprised you the most because it took off and really got into the favor of the public hugely well there there have been a few I mean uh, first of all I would say going going back all the way to uh, 1980, the first album I ever made with my dad. Um, that was the the first album where he decided to bring uh, vocalists into you know the Latin jazz group setting. And so that uh, Claire Fisher and Salsa Picante present two plus two album won a Grammy in 1981. So that was that was a pretty way to start my career. And then uh, we won another Grammy in 1987, I believe. Uh, for for another vocal album, so that was that was something we were really happy about having. Um, we were you know we were uh, surprised by the longevity of Prince. 
and uh, well, for a time there, Robert Palmer. Robert Palmer was doing really well for quite a few years there, uh, and and uh, so so th- there was that. Um, I was surprised by, you know, yeah, you never know when you make an album. You just do your best, and you never know how it's going to reverberate with people. Like for instance, yeah, the album that I did with with Elvis Costello, that was uh, with him and the Roots and then my orchestral arrangements. So you put the three together. We did one performance um, on, you know, on the Jalen show. And then I think um, Costello and the Roots did a few other performances, but, but basically they were both busy with their careers. The band was, you know, the band was on the TV show plus their other gigs. And then Costello had his own touring date. So they, they, they were unable to do a tour for that album to support it. And so it didn't get a lot of notice, not what, not what I was expecting. And then on the other hand, this, you know, this D'Angelo album that I worked on, uh, Black Messiah, that was released in late 2014 and uh, won a couple of Grammys in 2016. That was, um, you know, that was something that people had been waiting for for about 15 years. It took about 15 or 16 years to put that whole album together. And, uh, and so I think that was, you know, something that it, it's kind of my calling card now, at least for right now, until the next one comes along. A lot of people know of me because of that. Um, but then again, there are other people who know of me as, you know, the guy who has directed uh, all these Grammy-winning outs uh, from the Claire Fisher Big Band or the Claire Fisher um, Orchestra, Claire Fisher Latin Jazz Band, Um each each one of those has been, you know, we've always been really happy when an album does well, and when it doesn't, I think I'm I'm not so worried about that because we're not writing this music to be current. It has no attachment to necessarily the times that we're in right now. The idea is to make the music relevant for the state of the art today, but timeless in a sense that um, we hope that people will keep on listening to this music years from now. And, and they do, you know, we get, we get people um, ordering CDs that, uh, you know, we released uh, in the late nineties or whenever. And every once in a while, you know, somebody discovers it and they, they find out about uh, what we're doing and, and order a bunch of CDs or some of the LPs that we still have, you know, I uh, don't have that many left, but, uh, but we do have some vinyl and so collectors are ordering that, and uh, and it's because you know they they may have just heard a Claire Fisher album from the '60s, and it just you know it went unnoticed because maybe it uh, you know maybe it, it got a got some good reviews or whatever, but but something else big was happening that year, you know something else really big was happening that year that just commanded everybody's attention. So the idea that um, you know, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't want to make a hit record. I want to make an album that is timeless, that people will be able to enjoy listening to just as much 30 or 40 years from now as, as they do today. And so in that sense, you know, I'm always uh, an eternal optimist, you know, glass is always two-thirds full uh, type of guy about uh, all the different recordings that we've done because I'm proud of them. I don't go back and listen to any of them and think to myself, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's sort of embarrassing or something like that. You know, I don't, we don't have that. 
that sense because um, my dad was always sure of himself when he went into the studios. There was no fishing around at the session, you know, trying to find the sound or trying to create that special magic or whatever. He knew what he wanted to do when he went into the studio and, and how to get what he wanted out of the players. And uh, I've, I've taken that attitude myself. When I go into the studio, we can, we can record very quickly and efficiently that with, you know, great emotion and feeling, too. We did the entire pictures at an exhibition big band album in a single day of recording. And, you know, I, I, I basically had to do it that way, first of all, because of, you know, a lot of the, the pandemic restrictions that were in place uh, had forced us back in our timetable. And so in order to get the album out by a certain date, we had to record quickly and also mix fairly quickly. You know, we had, we had a few weeks to mix and, and then master also very quickly. And uh, it was okay because we have a good system set up. You know, everybody knows what, the, you know, the division of labor is, is all uh, understood. And so when we go into something, it's, uh, you know, it, so it sounds kind of clinical and scientific the way, <laughs> the way I'm describing it here. But there's also a great amount of emotion and feeling that goes into it. And when we listen back to a take, I, I make sure that that is one of the things that is there, a heartfelt performance. And I think because we did record quickly and we didn't make too many takes, uh, we have that captured. Uh, I was going to say on tape, but that's, uh, I don't know what we use. It, it, it's, 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 in the, uh, it's in the ones and the zeros of the, yeah. uh, of the hard drive now. So, uh, <laughs> So the feeling, the feeling is definitely there. And, you know, we never had to take so many takes that it became, you know, technically perfect, but artistically lifeless at that, you know, because you're just so many times going through the same material. The law of diminishing returns starts, you know, invading the, uh, you know, the, the, the whole aesthetic process at that point. This was, yeah, this was, all I, I'm really happy with the way everything came out, and uh, you know, now I know if we have to do another album during a similar type of uh, unusual times, I'll figure out a way to adapt and adjust. Wonderful. You know, you've been fortunate over your career, obviously, to have done quite a bit yourself and be around quite a bit. So when you are around younger players and you have that opportunity to teach them and to give them really, you know, good nuggets of wisdom about being a musician or being in the industry, what do you really try to key in on? What do you want them to get from what you know and what you can teach them? Well, the first thing that I'm looking for when I have a student that is um, an arranger composer is to pass along the... Um, sort of these unique ways of looking at music that were first conceptualized by my father, where, you know, whereby his influences weren't just, let's say, uh, Duke Ellington, Lenny Tristano, Billy Strayhorn. I mean, those are three huge influences on him. But there was an equal influence from Shostakovich, Stravinsky, Bartok, Charles Ives, and uh, all these, uh, you know, Alban Berg, all these great symphonic composers. And then uh, when you add to that, I've, you know, I've had influence from listening to people like Alan Holdsworth and Jeff Berlin uh, and, and uh, Steve Kahn. And I will use 
inspiration from things that I've heard them do and fit it to, again, you know, this, the type of stuff that I'm working on, whether it's a, you know, a, a, a bluesy ballad like we have on this uh, Pictures at an Exhibition piece, or, you know, kind of we have rock funk in there, Brazilian, some Brazilian tinged, uh, some of the movements, you know. Also, just just uh, every, everything that we're doing in the, you know, in the bebop world, uh, all of those elements come together into sort of this fusion and uh, not like, I'm not talking, I, I use the word fusion in, let's say, in intermingling. A good friend of mine, fantastic vocalist out here in Los Angeles, Sam Booker, she um, coined the term transgenre. And I like that idea where you are sort of blending genres. And, and of course, there is one overarching, you know, obviously I've made a big band album. It's, it's firmly in the jazz category. The framework of the album is jazz, but there are elements of Latin, symphonic, rock, funk, and, and things like that that are mixed in there. So that, these are these types of ideas that I'm trying to get across to students that are arrangers, composers, um, and, and guys that are doing music writing. But for the other students, the people that are players, I'm always looking for the next generation of great musicians coming out of uh, universities all across the U.S., Canada, and, and you know some of them from uh, music conservatories in, uh, in Europe. Um, we've, we've had people play in my big band who are, uh, you know, European, um, and, and then also many, many, uh, colleges around the United States. And I, you know, I try and keep in touch with some of the colleges. It's not always easy because you never know where the next great player is coming, coming from. I think enough people know by now that that I'm interested in doing that. I've got people in my band that are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and some in their 70s. Uh, we used to have an 80, you know, a guy in his 80s in there. Unfortunately, he, he had to retire. But, you know, it's great to have that. You know, the, uh, the older guys sort of impart their wisdom and experience to the younger guys who um, might not have gotten that had they been just playing with players their own age. And then in return, the, uh, the younger players uh, impart that, that, that youthful vitality and, the, you know, it becomes it, infectious and it, it rubs off on uh, the older experienced players to sort of, you know, bring, bring up their game. And when, when we need something to be aggressive and hard driving, then they, uh, they find the energy within themselves, you know, find that youthful energy again to, to do that. And uh, so, so that's, that's what I'm looking for in, in players, uh, you know, when I'm searching out the next great uh, generation of musicians, because I, I want this to continue beyond me. There will be somebody one day that I hope to hand over the directorship of uh, all of these bands, not only that I inherited from my father, but the, the projects uh, that, I've, that I've put together myself, and to be able to play this music, um, 50 or 70 years from now, sort of like um, has been done with, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sure everybody has varying degrees of things they like or things they don't like about uh, how different, let's say, some legacy big bands are from the way the original director 
had the band sounding whatever 70 or 80 years ago. Uh, and that's, that's always a risk you take. It's always, things are always going to change depending on the, uh, the type of musicians that you, you have in there. And so what my goal is, is to just make sure that I, I don't just get anybody in this band because other people tell me, oh yeah, that's a great player. I, I want to make sure it's a great player that thinks similarly or has similar conceptual uh, paradigms for you know how we look at music and and how the art is created and what serves the music best right that's for me the overall the overarching goal of everything is what serves the music best really you get to wake up every day and create music whether you're you know performing conducting arranging what what do you like the best about this process of being a professional musician of of making music I, I need to have the plumber come over right now. I've got to take my car into tires. And, you know, there are still those, <laughs> all the life things that, that need to go on. So it's it's not just, yeah, all day, every day. That would be really nice. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, there, there are all sorts of uh, other things that, 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 uh, that take place. But, yes, I do, you know, I think uh, another friend of mine said it best. He's also, um, he's not a musician, but he's a self-employed freelancer like I am. And he said, it's like I'm on vacation and I'm also working 24-7. So in other words, you know, if there's a day where maybe the big project is finished and you can take a break or whatever, it doesn't matter if that day is uh, Tuesday or Wednesday because I don't have, you know, aside from meetings or a recording session or something that has a, you know, definite time where I have to be in a certain place, then my time is my own. Um, on, on the other hand, uh, the, you know, that, that vacation time, so to speak, can be interrupted at any moment by a call saying, uh, we needed three string arrangements yesterday. You know, how soon can you give them to us? You know, that the, the Michael Jackson thing that I did was, uh, that was a 72-hour turnaround. I got the music on a Saturday night, and Tuesday evening, I was standing in front of a 45-piece orchestra that I had written for, you know, and only gotten about 10 hours sleep that whole weekend over those three days and, uh, and, and, and just got it done. And that's, you know, that's what you need to do. So that was, you know, there was no clocking out at that point. This had to be finished. The recording session was set. They had other deadlines, you know, that were much more important than me, uh, you know, getting this piece finished. And so I, I had to conform to their setup. And, uh, and so that's always, that's always a situation. And I know guys that, that do that, you know, they'll, they'll, uh, and I did this for many, many years when I was touring. Now I just do a little bit, but you know, it's still the same thing. You, you, uh, fly somewhere on the other side of the world, uh, you sleep for a little bit, then you get up, you go to a sound check, you do a concert, you might have to turn around and fly straight back. And once you get to get back to LA after, you know, a 20 hour trip or something like that, you take a two hour nap, get up and go somewhere and play music. So it's, it's all of those things. Um, and, and so, uh, so I, I love the idea that nothing is ever the same. And I also love the idea that between, uh, all of the different ethnic styles that I've been, uh, you know, honored to take part in over the years, um, besides, you know, all the American music I'm doing, I, I can honestly say there's no song that I've ever played in my life 
that I've you know just sort of really gotten tired of, and and I think that was that was part of what was happening when I was you know when I was getting educated when I was getting my degree and all the stuff that I was looking at to learn what my father was doing. Not in the sense that I took lessons from my dad ever. It's just you know we were on sessions and we'd be talking about stuff. He said, "Did you notice how I did this here and how I wrote for that instrument?" And then I'd look at it or I'd ask them questions. You know, what were you thinking when you did this? And, and we'd, we'd get into this great discussion about, oh, I don't know, a, a trumpet mutes or something like that. And uh, so all, all that was going on concurrently because I was either playing, you know, percussion in the symphony orchestra or electric bass uh, on a gig. Those instruments don't quite require as much concentration as, let's say, uh, you know, the second alto player in a big band or the, or the first violist in an orchestra. Those guys really have to concentrate on what they're doing to blend with their section. They're not listening as much to what's going on with the, you know, with the trumpets or the clarinets than as, uh, you know, as, as I would get a chance to do. And so I, I just had a chance to absorb all this stuff. And that's part of what happened with uh, pictures at an exhibition, is, you know, performing with an orchestra when I was in college. And there just wasn't a lot to do back in the percussion section. So I got to listen and absorb everything. And then the same with my dad's group. All those years that, you know, I had their, uh, I had, had all my bass parts pretty much memorized. I really didn't need to put a lot of written music in front of myself. Now, as an older man, I do need to uh, put the put the charts in front of me and read along just to make sure I, you know, still remembering what I, what I maybe haven't played a song, maybe I haven't played in a few years. Um, but you know, I was, I was all playing from memory when I was a younger man, and so I got a chance to just play bass and listen to what everybody else was doing, and I could study the you know, the interactions between the drums and percussion or the interactions between the voice and the keyboard and the woodwind parts. And and so these, you know, these are great positions to be in uh, when I think about what it takes to be a band leader. And uh, I'm, I'm surprised there aren't more bass player band directors. I always have said, you know, keyboard players usually are the band directors when you see a lot of different touring acts, but, you know, they have their hands full, literally. They have their hands on the keyboard, so they have to conduct sometimes with their head or nod something. And, you know, I can play bass with one hand for a few bars, you know, just press my fingers against the frets and it'll still make sound. So I've got my right hand to be able to cue people in or, or you know, uh, conduct a rubato section or to whatever it needs, you know, cut off the band all on, on the same time. So in that respect, I, I'm really happy with the instruments that I chose at the young age. When I, I wasn't, I don't know why I gravitated to those instruments, but I did, and I think it's worked out very well. And, and it's there, you know, they're easy to practice and maintain. The hardest part is just uh, that I'm not, I'm not actually a piano player. I play enough piano to be able to write at the keyboard, but then, you know, when something is complicated, <laughs> I can't play it very fast at the keyboard. I just sort of have to imagine it in my head and then that's also another great you know thing that could be able to do is to imagine the music in your head so that that when you finally hear it live after you've been writing it that it sounds the same way in person as it did when you were conceiving it inside your brain so everything's going to come down to this everyone has a perception of you your family your friends your fans but ultimately you live your life you have a perception of who you are who do you think you are 
<laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> I, I I think yeah I think the the one thing that drives me every day is I have so much music that I still want to create even after all these years. Um, not only do I have uh, ideas for original compositions for my head in, inside my head uh, that have yet to be put down on paper, and then I I have. Uh, ideas for arrangements that I'd like to do of other people's music, but I've got, I've got also a long list here of, uh, of Claire Fisher tunes that, that, uh, you know, he wrote maybe for his trio or, you know, in some other small group setting that I really would like to arrange now for a larger ensemble, either the clarinet choir, big band, uh, rhythm section and strings, something like that. And, and, uh, maybe do a, music of Claire Fisher series and and that's you know that's that's where we look to the fans to really help us out there is a donut a donate donut <laughs> there is a donate <laughs> button on uh, clairefisher.com down at the bottom of the uh, the home page and that that money goes straight into the Claire Fisher Memorial Recording Fund and and helps us to uh put out more albums like this and and then um you know when i think of something more for myself i'll make another album for myself at some point so that's that's really how i think of myself besides uh you know all all the other things that i do in my life that uh, i'm interested in which are essentially i i love traveling i've been all around the planet um all seven continents i've been to antarctica i've been to almost 80 countries i love the interactions uh you know of, of different cultures and you know, to, to be able to do business as a musician when I'm going to work for somebody in a foreign country and see how, you know, even though there are good people, bad people, really organized people, really disorganized people, you can find that, you can find all of those in any country you go to. But, um, to you know, to find out kind of how the how the culture works, how the business is set up, all those different places. So that's, you know, that's, these are, these are other things that I'm interested outside of music. Uh, and as a matter of fact, the uh, the pictures that you see in my Pictures at an Exhibition album, part of what I did with this album to encourage people to actually purchase the physical CD uh, as opposed to just streaming it. And, and of course, you know, CD players are still cheap if, you, if your old one stopped working. They're uh, relatively inexpensive right now. So, uh, you know, in, in order to sort of get people to c consider buying CDs. I made sure I, um, first of all, we have bonus tracks on this album, stuff that you can't get on streaming. Um, they're not just alternate mixes. I took extra, not extra. Let's say I have two versions of the same movement in three different places. And the rhythm section parts, which are essentially improvised, um, are completely different and the solos are different the ensemble parts are the same or similar but the solos are completely different so in that way i could uh, have six or seven people take a solo on one song without it being more than five or six minutes in length because you can hear the other version not an alternate version it's it's not a sequel it's an equal just like uh, you know just like the saying goes and, and so that's one thing that I did. The other thing was to put uh, a large booklet in the album that explains, you know, exactly 
what the processes were that we went through to make this whole album. And then I've curated my own pictures at an exhibition exhibit right there in the booklet. Some of them are the photos of all the, the sessions and rehearsals that we did. So, you know, like I said, plenty of outdoor pictures, uh, pandemic-friendly pictures. And then, um, and then I have pictures that I have taken myself from around the world. And I've got uh, pictures from, I, I believe, every continent. If I missed a continent, I, I apologize because uh, I just kind of went with what I felt were the best pictures that I had taken <laughs> over the years uh, in my travels. And, I, and, and we have a, a, you know, a, a game where you can actually look at the pictures and try and guess where they are and go to the back of the booklet and answers are in the back. So you can, you can test your, uh, your knowledge of, let's say, uh, geography and geology. I don't, I don't have that many urban areas in, um, in the photographs. It's most, mostly natural scenery. I, I guess, again, to, you know, to make a short story long, that's essentially how I think myself of myself. I have my interests and um, I love what I do. I love working with so many different people and the fact that it gets, it, it becomes a different project. And, uh, and then when, you know, people like my work, they come back and we get to do something else again. And even though it's with the same people, again, it's, you know, we're dealing with different music, maybe even a different style. So these are, you know, these are the great things that I've been able to do and, and what, what is important to me is to make uh, great music and I, I got that gift from my father. Final question actually I have and yeah. this, because we're going through this pandemic and we're kind of waking up and coming out of it, you've talked about that energy you felt at the Stevie Wonder Show and there is that magic in live environments. What do you hope we all collectively realize about the power of live music once we get back to it in earnest? I would say this has been another, now, now that you remind me, another goal in my life to, to make, think, you know, make people think about the idea that that's fine to listen to music sometimes as a background, you know, just sort of background distraction. It's there, it's soothing in the background while you're concentrating on something while you're working, whatever, uh, or, or you're having a party. Uh, some people go to festivals basically to party and the, you know, the bands that are playing on stage are they're, they're again, they're, they're just kind of like a distraction. The main thing is to hang out with their friends and, and have a good time. And that's fine. Um, that's one way to enjoy music. But even if you're not a trained musician and you can't, you know, for instance, hear the types of things I hear, I, I usually make this analogy that, that uh, shows, let's say an idea of how hearing is, you know, one of the, lesser developed senses, let's say out of all the five senses. Let's say you walk into a restaurant and you, you can smell the food and you can, you can figure out by the smells you're smelling what's, what's cooking. And then, uh, you know, when you finally get your food and you taste it, you get, you get all these, these tactile confirmations, you know, the, the texture of the food when you, uh, when you are cutting it and putting it in your mouth. And, and then the, again, the flavors, the smells, all these things you are seeing, touching, tasting and smelling but the music that's playing in the background in the music in in the restaurant are you for instance aware that the drummer is playing in four four that the chord that's playing right now is a b flat major nine that the singer is singing a d the, the horn players are playing an f and a g are, are you aware of that that's going on and and do you have that ability and and for the people that do 
this is, you know, kind of a, a blessing and a curse. It's like when I, you know, when I walk into a, a mall and I hear the main mall music is uh, in A flat, let's say, and, and as I'm walking by a specific store, they're playing something that's in A, and I'm, you know, and they're different tempos, and I'm, I start, my brain starts trying to analyze, okay, how do these two musics coincide with each other? That, I, and I've learned how to, you know, push that, push that tendency I have to the back so that I can just not, not let it, not let it bother me anymore. Uh, but, but even for those people that don't have this ability to be able to do this, there are incredible emotional depths that you can find in, in all directions. You know, I, I can't tell you how many people have told me, um, Brent, thank you so much. I, I just want to let you know that uh, either they'll say your music has brought me so much joy in my life or they'll say uh, something like your music really got me through a tough time in my life and to be able to listen to it sort of helped me go beyond uh, or you know, do what I needed to do to get to the next phase of my life. Um, I, I just, you know, I wonder if this, uh, you know, more music in... Uh, hospitals for people to listen to is going to help people have that that sense of you know i can i can gain i can draw energy from this to battle the cancer or whatever you know whatever i'm whatever that person has to battle when they're in the hospital so these are all these 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 types of things that uh i i hope that people will realize especially when you go to hear live music the difference in the sound, the, the difference in the sound from when you're listening to it. And all, there's a difference when you are listening to an LP or a CD on a nice stereo system in your home or your car as compared to um, putting little earbuds in and listening to, you know, streaming music is like, it, it's like the, the audio equivalent of looking at a grainy old black and white newspaper photo. It's just not the same as when you see something that's real life, high resolution, 3D, all of those great things um, that we like visually. Now, I, I hope people will wake up to the idea that, that your life can be enhanced by doing this in the audio sense as well. And so that, that would be, for me, a wonderful thing to see people realize, you know, hey, this is so much better. <laughs> When it's live, right, and, and I'm standing, actually, that's how I open my liner notes. It's nothing better than hearing live music, you know, especially when you're standing right there with the band and you're, you're surrounded by them or you're right in front of them or you're wherever you are that you're near them, that you can hear what's going on. And for me to also watch people play and to see what they're doing with their instruments and how they're, you know, this, how they're, manifesting their skills in real time. So these, these are all great things that I hope people will come away with. Yeah, it's nice to watch somebody perform on Zoom, but it's so much better when you go see them live, right? I agree. 100% agree. Beautiful. Brent, thank you for taking some time out today, man. This has been wonderful. I appreciate it. 
You are quite welcome, sir. Thank you very much for, for having this great conversation with me. I love it. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and minds in L.A., New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Brent for his time, energy, and all of that wonderful music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.